Welcome to this week's sermon from Dale Partridge at Kingsway Bible Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit kingswaybible.org. So the last several weeks, uh, we have been in a topical format. So we haven't had the opportunity to uh, get back into the verse-by-verse exposition of Romans. And the last place that we left off in Romans chapter 6, it was this concept that Paul is defending against the idea that a free grace gospel will lead to people sinning freely. He's struggling with the accusation of the Jews saying, wait, you're saying that we're justified by faith alone, that there's no works that we can do. And if there's no works that we can do, and you're saying that we're justified by the works of Christ, how will people not become antinomian? How will people not become licentious? How will people not just abuse that sin? We understand these verses like, uh, should we keep on sinning that grace may abound? Certainly not. And so he's still dealing with that reality. And he's trying to give us an understanding of how our relationship with Christ by grace actually changes and reorients our hearts so the motive is no longer law or no longer fear or no longer punishment to obey, but that our motive is now grace and love and gratitude for the salvation that you've received in Christ. So verse uh, chapter six, verse 14, if we look to it real quick, I would say it almost acts as a thesis for the entire section that we're going to be going through today. It says, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That is the thesis of the transition that's occurred between our relationship with the law and now our relationship with Christ. So it says, or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law was juris- that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while she- he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you are also made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So verse one, I spent about an hour trying to figure out who Paul was talking to here, because there are some commentators that think that he's talking specifically to the Jews. When he says something like, therefore, my brethren, you... Uh, so read your ESV. Someone read out your ESV. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law? For I'm speaking to those who know the law. So there's a reference there in some translations that you go, okay, is he speaking specifically to the Jews or is he speaking to both Jews and Gentiles, referring to brethren, as well as um, is he speaking to the, the Romans, Christians and Jews in one church? Or is he speaking specifically to the Jews? The other question I had was revolving around the law. Is he talking about capital L law, which it is in my Bible, the Mosaic law? Or is he talking about civil law? 
Is he talking about all law? And I actually landed on that he's talking about all law, not capital L law. And Martin Lloyd-Jones and R.C. Sproul and Robert Haldane from the Banner of Truth Roman series all agreed. And so I felt I was in good company coming to that conclusion. But it was a serious struggle to figure out what is the reality. Now, the context and the content of the rest of this chapter, the previous parts of the chapter, all point to that being what he's talking about. He's not talking and giving a specific doctrine to the Jews. So when he says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. He's basically saying something along the lines, Do you not know, if you're in a nation, wherever you live, there is a law. Whether you are in your home or whether you are uh, far off or whether you are hiding or whether your age is young or whether your age is old or whether you work for the government or whether you don't, you are not above the law. The law is always above you. It has authority over you. And it's saying that we know this. This is common knowledge that as long as you live, you have a relationship to the law in which it has authority or dominion over you. It has rule over you. And so he's giving us a general principle about our relationship with the law in order that he can have an illustration to soon show us the relationship between our relationship with the law spiritually and it changing into our relationship with Christ spiritually. So he goes from the general and now he moves to the specific. So he now gives you a more specific illustration that I believe everybody would understand in this generation because we understand marriage and this is a society which this was very clear. It says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. And so he's using an example from regular life that we understand that our relationship with a particular authority is remaining as long as there is life. But if the relationship is ended and severed by death, which is separation, that is the only point in which that relationship from a wife to her husband would change. And so death essentially becomes the marker that separates us or reorients us to a different authority. And this is an important point. Again, he says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. So if our relationship with the law is alive, meaning that it has a ruling and condemning power over us. Now, if you're a Christian, is that true? Does the law, are you alive to the law and dead to Christ? Or are you dead to the law, meaning you're separated from the law and alive to God? Well, the Romans chapter six has just clearly taught us that. And we are no longer alive to the law, meaning we are no longer united to the ruling and condemning power of the law. The motive for obeying the law is, is in that world is fear. You must fulfill all of it. I think it was James 2.10. Let's read James 2.10 real quick. It says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty in all of it. If you have kept the whole law, but you stumble in one point, you're guilty of all of it. That is the condemning and ruling power of that law. And we born of Adam are in union with that law. 
we are dead to God and alive to the law under the subordination of the law. And what Paul is trying to communicate here is that through Christ, we have become dead to the law, separated from the ruling power of the law, and alive to God. We have had a transfer, a reorienting of the authority which rules our hearts from the rule of the law to the rule of Christ. It's a transition that has occurred. And he says in verse 3, So then if while her husband is living, as she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, that she is not an adulteress, though she joined to another man. Now I ask myself the question, why did he choose marriage as the specific illustration to communicate the principles of our relationship to the law and the authority therein, and our relationship to Christ and the authority therein? And I think about women understand, especially Christian women, that there is an authority. She is under an authority, a ruling power of her husband while she is alive. Whether she leaves or whether she, outside of a valid divorce, which is another discussion, if she leaves, if she moves, if she change her name, no matter what she does, she is still under that ruling power of her authority, whether she wants to realize that or not. And the same is true with the law of God. Whether we want to realize it, whether we want to recognize it, whether we want to preach someone to the Ten Commandments and then not believe that there's actually a jurisdiction that occurs over their hearts and minds, the power and the authority is still valid. It's still there. And this is something that we need to, this is presuppositional apologetics, right? When we preach to someone the gospel, we, we tell them what is true. There is a law. There is a jurisdiction over your behavior. God has an expectation for your behavior, your morality. And if you break that law, you are guilty, even at one point. And we know, uh, as I said in many sermons in the past, that um, a low view of the law always leads to legalism. Okay, a low view of the law always leads to legalism. So if you have a church that has a low view of the law, they will always teach you to try to keep it. If you have a low view of the law, this idea that you go, man, I could probably just obey and keep all the law and I'll actually justify myself or I will actually please God or, or at least secure my salvation or, or sustain my salvation through works. If you have a low view of the law, you will try to keep it and actually contribute to your justification. However, check this out. If you have a high view of the law, you will realize that you cannot keep it. The law is not some little rock that you can pick up. The law is a Mount Everest magnitude that is impossible to hold. You cannot keep it. You have not kept it. And it will and aims to crush you. And this is the point of Christ. Christ comes in and he tells people very clearly with a high view of the law, You've heard that it was said that if you commit adultery, but I say if you even look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. He's a law amplifier. You quickly realize, wait, it's not just what I do, it's also what I think. You start to see how big that law is and that you can't keep it and that you need actually someone else to keep it so that that righteousness from that perfect law keeper who is Jesus Christ 
can be given to you by faith. You get that? Only Christ could keep the law and fulfill the demands of the law. So when you start to see the size of the law, what do you do? You run to Christ. That's what evangelism is designed to do. It's to show you the size of the law and the wrath of God coming for you. You know this phrase, saved. We kind of toss it around in American Christianity. Oh, he's saved, you know. Oh, I don't know if he's saved or not. Oh, they're certainly saved, okay? We just toss it around, right? It's just a phrase. Do you know what we're talking about when we say that? Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. So when you just taught, like, I'm saved from the wrath of God that was given to Christ for my sin. This is an incredible reality. So when you think again about the law in which we are either united or dead to, and Paul is saying through faith in Christ, you have become dead to the law and alive to God. You are no longer united to the ruling and condemning power of the law. You are now united to the ruling and condemning power of Christ, or sorry, the, 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 the ruling and graceful power of Christ. You've transferred kingdoms. And it, the point that it's trying to make here in verse three, at the end of verse three, it says, but if the husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she, though she is joined to another man. You have to see that there's a, like there's actually a breaking and there's actually a joining to Christ. The doctrine of union is very important. The doctrine of union is very important. Um, if we go to Romans chapter six, um, it says this, let me, let me read you this and I want you guys to understand when Christ died, sorry, I'll go back. When Christ lived, you lived in Christ by faith. When Christ died, you died in Christ by faith. When Christ resurrected, you resurrected in Christ by faith. This is the doctrine of union. And you, you really need to understand what's happening here because when you're outside of Christ, you don't have the righteousness applied to you. You don't have the death to sin applied to you. You don't have the resurrection to eternal life applied to you. You need to be in Christ. So again, Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, that's spiritual baptism, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united to him in a likeness of his death, certainly we shall be united in a likeness of his resurrection. Okay, this is, this is language all over the New Testament that what happens to Christ happens to you by faith is that when he died, you died. When he was raised, the securing of your resurrection was accomplished. Turn to Galatians 2, 20. This is why Paul says things like this. Check this out, verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I, which I live now, I live in the flesh. Or the, the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 
I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died without need. These are very important doctrines for you to understand of what happened to you. That's what most of the New Testament is about, right? It's a letter to Christians, reminding Christians of what it means to be Christian. It's teaching you guys what happened when you were saved. Very easy to understand the fundamentals of the gospel. Repent, trust not in yourself to be righteous before the moral law of God. Trust only in the righteousness of Christ alone. That's the gospel. But to understand the doctrine of union, to understand how you were in the law, under the ruling power of it, and have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, to understand the intricacies of the transition and the reorienting of your heart, the deadness of your heart and the aliveness of your heart towards Christ. These are the great mysteries of the faith, the great things. I always tell people, and I can't take credit for this quote because this is probably from somebody that's smarter than me, but your praise can only go as high as your theology is deep. So if you want low praise and a mediocre Christian worship, have light theology, milk, what Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews speaks against. But if you want theology that makes you weep in light of the gospel, if you want opportunity to preach the gospel that conveys power and majesty, you have to know these things. You have to know the deepness of the gospel. Verse four in chapter seven, back in Romans. Therefore, my brethren, you were also made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Okay, I wish I could be like uh, Spurgeon and not put out nine sermons on that one verse, but I'm gonna at least make a point here. Therefore, my brethren, you were also made to die. Sovereignty of God over salvation. It wasn't you who did the dying to the law. It was the Lord sovereignly making you die to the law. He's the one that severed the relationship, the ruling power of sin over your life. You did not choose Christ, Christ chose you. You did not save yourself, Christ saved you. This is, again, one of those simple catches that you see as you read through scripture. You go, oh, you did that, God, not me. And that should be the constant recognition as you look through the gospel of your own salvation. You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that, purpose clause, whenever you see the word so that, you go, oh, it's about to tell me why. It's about to tell me why. So that you might be joined to another. You start to see the illustration of the marriage, why he used the illustration, that you were united with this one reality until that was severed by death, and now you're permitted to be married to another, the church married to Christ. Beautiful, beautiful parallels that are seen here. So that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. In order that, another purpose clause, that's another catch. If you're gonna be a smart Bible interpreter, you're gonna learn to see when it says so that, in order that, you're gonna underline those because you realize that that is a purpose clause. It's gonna teach you how to interpret scripture, making you a faithful Bible interpreter, comprehending the gospel so that you're no longer a baby drinking milk from the word, but meat, and that you can be conveyed and used for the gospel and eloquence and accuracy and power requires this in order that we might bear fruit for God. Can you bear fruit for God if you're not a Christian? It's impossible to bear fruit for God if you're not a Christian. This means that outside of Christ, 
you bear no fruit. Turn to John 15. John chapter 15, verse four. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do something. Nope, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. This is an amazing passage. This means, was there any good works that you've done prior to coming to Christ? Some people might say, but pastor, I used to give my money to this charity or I donated blood or, or I, uh, I, I served in this capacity. Outside of Christ, everything that we do is sin. Now that's a hard concept. What does Isaiah 64, 6 say? Even your righteous deeds are like filthy rags to me. Romans later says, uh, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. The reality that is that if you do some sort of work outside of Christ before you've been redeemed, though it might be good to the eyes of men, and though it might feel good in terms of the ways of morality, if it's done outside of the glory of Christ, not done for Christ through faith, how would it be done? Well, it's gonna be done from pride. It'll be done from self-glorification. It'll be done from self-righteousness. It'll be done from self-aggrandizement. It's not gonna be done for the glory of Christ because you don't know Christ. And there's a passage in Romans that says um, that when we're in the flesh, nothing we can do pleases God. And this is important for us to grasp because we often think that people are good and you're gonna run into people who believe that they are good. I mean, even the, the ruler that asked Jesus, you know, why do you call me good? There is only one good and that's God. Now he's obviously alluding to the reality of himself there. But we do not do good works outside of Christ. So let me give you an example. This is called the Augustinian matrix. So in Genesis, Adam and Eve could do good to the glory of God and they could sin. But they could genuinely, truly do good to the glory of God. Once they sinned, everything they did was sinful. Even their good works were sinful because they weren't done to the glory of God, but the glory of self. When Christ comes and we're saved, we're returned back to somewhat of an Adam and Eve-like state where we can do things that are truly done through the spirit to the glory of God. And we can also sin. When we're in heaven, we will only be able to do things to the glory of God. You see that? So there's a transition those four quadrants of reality. And that's an important point. <clears throat> I remember before I became a Christian, I was skateboarding and I was skateboarding past a, a apartment complex. And I saw a two or three-year-old little boy dangling from the second story balcony uh, from the bottom rail on the outside. I heard him screaming and I, got off my skateboard, I ran up, jumped on this block wall, grabbed this little kid and pulled him down. I brought him all the way back upstairs to the upper apartment, brought him to his mom, his mom had no idea. And I remember thinking how good I was. 
That was such a good deed. But it was sinful. It was a good, it, it was a morally upright reality. But the heart from which it was done, it was for self-aggrandizement, self-righteousness, self-glory, done in pride. Again, we need to be able to separate the acts. Yeah, saving a child in and, in and of itself without the heart of man is a good act. But my heart in that specific moment and after it was sinful. And so when Paul says here in Romans 7, 4, in the latter part there, in order that we might bear fruit for God, we cannot bear fruit for the kingdom of God, to the glory of God, unless we have first been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Unless we have first been separated by death, death on the cross, from the ruling and condemning power of sin under the grace and love of Christ. Now, why, why does this matter? Um, God wants us to bear fruit. And he's not just talking about the fruits of the Spirit. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Those things should be done in the fruit of the Spirit, but it's, it's you're going to build a house to the glory of God while exercising the fruits of the Spirit. But there's actually things to build. There's things to do. Do you think building this church is fruitful? Certainly. Certainly if it's done to God's glory. And we do that while we walk out the fruits of the Spirit. But we're not going to just turn this into some pietistic reality where we're, God's only talking about spiritual fruit. We're only talking about spiritual fruit. No, there's much. You know what a godly family is? That's not just spiritual fruit. That's real tangible fruit. We want actually Christian schools and we want Christian institutions and we want Christian media and we want Christian art and we want Christian banking and financial and Christian civics and we want Christian economy and we want Christian churches and we want Christian politics and we want a Christian town and we want to bear fruit for God in all of these dimensions of life Yes, through fruits of the Spirit. But let's not minimize bearing fruit for God to just my private spiritual life. Because you know what that leads to is exactly what we have. A church that's been battered down by a secular world because we are here just being the church, hiding from the world. No, bearing fruit in the world, bearing the cross and the gospel into the world. Yes, what is the first thing? the very first thing that matters to bear fruit, the gospel. Because you know what? Apart from the gospel, you can do nothing. So yes, the tip of the spear is the gospel, but it's not the whole spear. The front door is the gospel, but it's not the whole house. We need to move beyond the gospel. We have too many Christians that run to the cross and stay there. I'm like, get up, rip that thing out of the ground and walk. We, we need that type of living in the church. That's how, that's how the church used to live. That's why we have a Christian nation, the remnant at least of it here in America. That's why we have hundreds of massive centuries long cathedrals across Europe. It's why we have almost every single country basing their entire law system off of the 10 commandments. They were bearing fruit for God. But when you reduce it to just spiritual life, 
just within the four walls of the church and that your Christianity does not pervade and invade the world. You get weakness. You get the culture that we have is that we don't polish brass on a sinking ship. Why would we improve this world that's turning to nothing? We cannot think that way. We want this city to be revived. We want the gospel to go out. We want it to actually do something, not just make people loving and kind and joyful. That's great. That's step one. But can you, like we all say as Christians, if I said, do you want the evangelization of Prescott and Prescott Valley? Every one of you guys go, yes, I do. Can you separate the evangelization from a city from the Christianization of that city? Can you? Can you change the evangelization of the world to not also be the Christianization of the world? Of course not, because the spiritual message comes in spiritually, changes the heart, and then it actually creates a life that transforms tangibly. You know why? Because if you're a Christian, your business will be Christian. Your kids will be Christian. The way that you vote will be Christian. The way you handle your money will be Christian. Your investments will be informed from a Christian worldview. The way that you dress will be Christian. The way that you raise your kids and the things that you consume in your home and the things that you build will be Christian. It'll actually materialize. It should, at least. That's the problem that we have today. The fruit must materialize. So again, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined together to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. This is what we're doing. This is why you're here. Did you know like your whole purpose in life is to glorify God and to bear fruit for God? Is it just remaining spiritual? How is it materialized in your life? I'll tell you what, the Mormons somehow get this. The Muslims somehow get this. The secularists get this. The liberals get this. You know what they do? Their stuff doesn't stay inside. It materializes. How do you think we have the world that we have? They're conquering. Like that should, that should really wake us up. This nation will either be a Christian nation, a Muslim nation, a pagan nation, a gay nation. It's going to be one of these nations. And you could take that to any, this city, this town, this neighborhood. And we know that local faithfulness is what produces national fruitfulness. Local faithfulness is what produces national fruitfulness. But let's actually materialize this fruit. Let's put our money, our resources, our time, our prayer, our preaching, our priorities, everything to bear fruit for God, that it might actually change this town, that it might actually change this state, that it might actually change this country. And you have to stop thinking myopically. Yeah, we're, can you actually build something that you're not gonna reap? We need to be able to do this. Think about your grandkids. I often even tell my little ones, think about your grandkids. How often are parents having conversations with their seven-year-old about their seven-year-old's grandkids? We need that. We need to give them long view. This journey of Christendom and kingdom is not just about you and your little time period. How, 
How blessed would you have been if your great-grandparents were thinking this way for you? Handing down multi-generational faithfulness and wealth and kingdom and that Prescott had already been a Christian city with an established church, strong and biblical. But here we are. Here we are as a small body by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we are severed that there is no more ruling power, condemning power, reigning power of sin in our life. Lord, that we have died to the law. We have been separated from it and we have been joined to Christ. Father, we thank you for doing that work in our lives, Lord. And we know that the purpose is to bear fruit. Lord, we ask that you would bless us, that you would teach us, that you would help us, that it would be by your spirit and for your glory that we would bear fruit as this church and our families, and our homes, and our hearts, and our lives, and our work, and our city. We ask for all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for listening to this sermon. For more information about Pastor Dale Partridge or Kingsway Bible Church, visit kingswaybible.org.